Welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help teens and adults with autism become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Um, Thank you for all those that uh, have listened to the podcast up to this point. It is so greatly appreciated. If you haven't done so yet, you can subscribe to the podcast to get easier listening access. Um, We have nine different podcast platforms now, including Apple, Google, Stitcher, and Anchor, to name a few. Today we are going to talk about one of my favorite topics, community. I always say we all need community. Next to food, water, and shelter, there may not be a more basic human need. Today we are going to talk with Eric Metzger, who will discuss this very important topic. Eric is the Director of Integration and Advocacy for Hamilton County Board of Developmental Disabilities. The mission of Hamilton County's Integration and Advocacy Department is to support opportunities for people with developmental disabilities to live full lives in the community, advocate for themselves and others on issues such as accessibility, and support families at each stage of their lives. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hi, Eric. It's great to see you. Great um, to be here. Yeah. I remember the the first time when we met, I think the thing that really struck me about you is um, how passionate you are about helping people with disabilities. So I just wanted to know, where did that come from, and how did you get involved in the disability community? Okay, I had, uh, in uh, 1988, I was playing professional football in the first European Football League, and uh, it came that league kind of folded, and I came home and uh, married my high school sweetheart and did not know what I was going to do. A friend of mine asked me if I would volunteer for a week uh, at what was then called a workshop. It was uh, strictly uh, teaching people uh, skills to work and or uh, some just uh, care issues. There were about 150, 200 uh, individuals with disabilities, so I walked in completely overwhelmed. Uh, I was so overwhelmed. I was like, "Well, finish my week, and I will not come back." This is so different. <laughs> I had I had not really met people with disabilities before, um, and uh, but I within a week uh, I was hooked. And in in several months later, I just knew that's what I was going to do for the rest of my career. And it really was the value of the people themselves recognizing that hey, they're they're people like everybody else, but they have all these gifts. Everything I've learned in the field comes from those guys and just their sense of, uh, you know, their own sense of value that was uh, pretty deep. And I think the other part of that is just empathy that that I learned uh, coming up through a a family who struggled 
uh, economically, a steel family that uh, is the steel industry closed and that, uh, that everybody just took care of everybody. That's what you did. And um, so that's kind of where it all started. So in doing research for this podcast, I came up across a, a quote from you that I, I really love. So I wanted to kind of share sure. share that today. Um, so you said, integration is not a privilege. It's a right. Every person has a right to an opportunity for friends and a regular life in the community, no matter who they are. So why don't you talk a little bit about sure. that and what expand upon that? Sure. Uh, it, it came to me in the, in, the, in the quote. The reason for the quote was is, is that, you know, I really feel like people should, they don't need to ask permission to do life. And what we've done is we've treated it as if they have to get it like it's a library card or like it's a immigration card or it's a you know something that says that they that they you know that they have to get something in order to get when in fact they're a citizen like everybody else and and I think it's important with that quote is you know they're giving something to the opportunity it's not that the people that we serve are are simply takers you know they have things to contribute that are awesome for society so that's really where that comes from. Right. So there's certainly barriers to inclusion, and I think there's a, definitely a lack of support, uh, particularly for for adults, and definitely a lack of knowledge in, in terms of how to develop community. So what are some of the things you've seen that are sort of best practices okay. in, in helping teens and adults develop community? Well, first of all, I think it's dispelling the myth that um, it, it, while it is an experience of people, there's, I think that there is a widespread, I, sh- I shouldn't say a, a myth because there, there's truth in it, but I think it is far um, uh, you know, overstated that the community is not ready to support people with disabilities. That is not my experience at all. I've been just overjoyed and amazed by how many people in the community, communities all over Cincinnati Hamilton County are willing to be hospitable, uh, give and take uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, citizens and businesses and those kind of things. But I do think approach has a lot to do with it, and I think a couple things that are really important. It's very important in our field that we recognize, you know, most of our uh, entry-level employees are called something along the lines of caregivers of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I think that that purports a certain image, and it's true that we provide care, but that is a different skill set. The yeah. community building. And yeah. so I think one of the things that, that we really have to do is make sure that we're giving all the folks in our field and families skills uh, that, that really lend themselves to community and, and um, you know, building relationships, creating those opportunities. The other thing that is critical is that we, again, that we are asset-based and not deficit-based. Most people in their history, most people with disabilities have been have been uh, looked at in order to qualify for services based on their deficit. What's wrong with you? Right. What diagnosis do you have? Those are not the way that we typically meet people. I have yet to go to a party and say, hey, thanks for having me here. I want to let everybody know that I have mental health issues, uh, that I get sick on, uh, you know, if I eat fish, uh, you know, all these kinds of things. So, um, so what we want to do is recognize, first of all, everybody we serve, and, I, and I, this is so important to me, regardless of the depth and profoundness of their disability, regardless of that, have uh, contributions to make, have gifts, have talents. And so number one is discovering who that person is. Do they have a sense of their own self, kind of their own elevator speech? Even if they don't have the ability to speak, do they have a sense of themselves, what they're about is number one. And then begin to discover what are their gifts, what are their talents, which may be uh, lighting up a room just because they have so much joy, even though uh, they may not speak. Uh, They may have some kind of skill 
that they do that they that you know that is something that's unique to them, regardless of what that is. Under you know finding that out and and really starting to build that uh, is their own portfolio is huge. And then the last part of that is making that relationship between their gifts and talents and uh, sectors or parts of their communities that they go to, really matching up the communities so that the, you know so that their contributions can be um, revealed and, and uh, valued by other people. All right. So in terms of developing community, I always say we all need community. Yep. So how, how does Hamilton County Developmental Disability Services go about helping yep. people develop that community? Okay, and we do it on both ends. First of all, again, we go, let's go back to the discovery process. We're finding out as much as we can about the person and, and what do they have. And I always say, you know, uh, no, no society in all of history has ever, ever accepted uh, uh, people... Uh, in their community if they don't have something to contribute. They just don't, you know. And we, again, I think that we've asked people to help people with disabilities without really uh, demonstrating what it is we contribute. And that doesn't just mean employment skills. So one of the things we do at Hamilton is the discovery process. One-on-one discovery is is absolutely critical. It's got to be customized to the person. Again, because we're talking about the whole spectrum of of folks with intellectual, physical, and, and other barriers. So... By doing that, by doing that discovery, now we can begin to look at what's the match. So we're actually doing that on the end of both the individual with a disability and their family and their ability, what are they able to access. But we're also doing that with community members. What is it that our community partners uh, want to give and what is it that they, that they need? Um, and so the example I always use is, you know, uh, a guy is aimlessly making uh, donuts after he started a donut shop for 10 years, and people come in, and the average customer says, hey, give me a cup of coffee, not donut. We have Bill who comes in, we, you know, we, we match him up because we just know, we're not sure what he wants to do, but we know a couple things. We know he loves donuts, we know he loves to socialize, even though he doesn't have speech sometimes. Uh, but he lights up a room, and so we know, you know, that's an easy environment. People love, you know, cafes, coffee, donuts. So he comes in on a Tuesday, and even though he can't speak, he's so expressive and overjoyed when he sees that sprinkled donut that Bill, the donut maker, for the first time in 10 years, realizes why he started making donuts, and they get a connection. And now that relationship starts to build, and we say, hey, and then the other customers are noticing, boy, is this guy jacked up about donuts. And, and so now maybe we begin a relationship where every Tuesday he comes, makes the customers feel good, makes Bill feel good, whether that turns into a volunteer opportunity, a job, or him just literally making life better for the people in that store is, is an easy example of, and I use that one because we're not asking him to have a skill. That's, an, that's a characteristic, that's a character trait, and, uh, and it's just improved the relationship. What happens from there now is where we begin to develop. What other things do we know about Bill? How can we make this a better give-and-take opportunity? So that's one of a million examples. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. I th- and I think that's really important in developing community is developing that trust and connection yep. with the person. Yep. Yeah, in fact, let me expand on that. So connection, and that really is it. You know, you, you move from discovery to exploration and connection. And it, and it isn't plugging people in the slots. It's so important to me that we understand that this is not us just trying to check uh, a box that says we moved, you know, Joe who has a disability or Tina who has a disability 
we, we can now say is Hamilton County, we got them doing something. That, that's abysmal. That's not what we're talking about. It's not our life. It really is their life. And we really believe they have something to give. It really is making sure that we're matching them so that, that the connection is a hospitable connection. So one of the things that we tease about within my group, when we really look at this, we have uh, our own shortcut language for when we create connections, uh, when we're looking at a community partner that we think might, you know, might have something to offer and might have something that they want, is we call it a high potential opportunity. Is it a high potential opportunity, which would be somebody that's hospitable to all kinds of people, with without disabilities, but just generally has a, a has a desire to treat their customers well or their you know the people they engage with well and in our hospitable and then we you know we liaison a little bit would you be open to this opportunity if they're kind of a little bit you know not not quite to that level we might call them a, a, a medium uh, if they're not good at all we'll call them a low and there's even a zero they are not hospitable to anybody they're just not a very friendly business not a very friend so we call those uh zippos lipos low potential opportunity <laughs> mippos and uh hippos which are high potential opportunities but it's the way that we look at that because we think it's fair you know uh and helpful to families and people with disabilities if we can say hey no we know this uh connection to be hospitable it just changes the whole trajectory and the approach right I think that's really important because if you don't have that supportive environment, I mean, the opportunities to really be successful in the community, it's going to decrease greatly. And I think we have uh, too many expectations for some people and not enough for others. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, sometimes we all know 10% of everybody in the world and in certain businesses are just jerks. They just are. They're just yeah. not very friendly. They're not nice. We don't know why they're in business or why they do what they do. But the, but the large portion of other people, and so what I mean by under and over expectation, sometimes we walk in and just expect that, you know, people would be hospitable. And, and we can't believe we're, we're – but if we really would just look at a wider view, you know, we just move on. What we tell people is if that's your experience, just move on. Just move on. Just move because there are what we know is there's so many other people yeah. that want to give and want to get and want to be involved. And so, uh, so then that's where the under expectation. Sometimes we don't think that there's enough good people out there. And I can tell you through our own uh, history in doing this is wow, are there a whole bunch of people that really want to do this? This kind of have these kind of connections or relationships both ways. Right. So. In addition to kind of having fun in the community and developing relationships, there's other things like going to appointments. Um, a lot of times what we'll do with some of our clients is going to doctor's visits. Yep. So um, I know you did have done in the past uh, presentations on some preventative health care. Yep. Can you talk about maybe some strategies to kind of make some of these visits um, more successful. And one of the a couple of things is, you know, doctors. People uh, don't realize doctors thrive on information. They need to they need to know, and and they're only as good sometimes is the information they're getting from support staff, from from families and that. And a lot of times, you know, we're we know so much about the person um, that that we forget what we know. The doctor sees them for even if they see them once a month, still they don't know all that's going on in their life. So, try, you know, doctors want baselines. Doctors want information about behavior. Uh, and one of the best pieces of advice I can say is, is whenever you're giving information to a doctor, a psychiatrist, or a caretaker, you know, is tell them what it looks like, because we all use words, and in our field we have all kinds of jargon. 
And so when we start talking about functionality and this that using our kind of DD words, that doesn't always translate to other disciplines. And so one of the things in terms of uh, you know good good prevention and then good care is to say what does it look like. So if what we mean is is that John's regular baseline is is that he's quiet and he and he does not have the ability to speak, but he he is expressive enough to give you a sense of what he likes. And then all of a sudden he doesn't. We need to describe what does that actually look like on a daily basis as compared to today. So if we can get that information to the doctor ahead of time, that is extremely helpful. So he has something to read. He knows what the baseline is, and he can treat it. On the other side is a lot of the people that we uh, that we care for. Um, don't enjoy going to the dentist or the doctor, or and quite frankly, it really is unproductive and it's really difficult and it's stressful for everybody involved. So we want to look at what techniques can we use to change it. And and I think getting your doctor, dentist, and that involved in ahead of time, not waiting till the moment that that happens to do that ahead of time. Say what what are some are there alternatives? Is there a possibility that a caretaker could stop the test? That's probably not the case, but in some cases it is. Uh, is there some kind of prep we can do with the nurse ahead of time mm-hmm. that makes that? Can we break the appointment up so that part of that is done, you know, at one point in the week and another is done in the other week? So really, just thinking about a strategy that reduces that stress. And also, I think it's very important to talk to your doctor, caretaker, dentist about, hey, look, while you're recommending a certain, um, you know, uh, operation, a certain procedure, or what are the alternatives? Because quite frankly, if the alternatives are not going to produce a significantly different outcome, um, then maybe a little lighter alternative is, is better. The other thing that I would say is I think there are a lot of things that people can likely do at home in terms of preventative uh, strategies, and I do mean like medically or health-wise or whatever, that reduce the, um, the intensity of doctor visits. And so, example, if we know that people are aversive to A, being in offices, period, mm-hmm. and B, long periods of time, and C, uh, uh, for dentists, if you have to get your mouth cleaned and that kind of stuff, we want to think, what is the shortest time we can do that? What kind of, you know, is, is, is the room an issue? All those kind of environmental factors so that we can, you know, and people think, well, that's a lot of time. That's kind of unrealistic. We can't do that. What I would say to those people is, you're already doing. You're already spending time and stress. You're missing appointments, those kind of things. So, again, to wrap this all up, I think the best thing to do is give give your give the professional that you're going to visit as much information ahead of time, mm-hmm. some kind of profile that really uh, says, or if that baseline changes, you got to let them know that. And then again, talking to them about alternatives uh, in terms of both the um, environment and the care. So, and then what what are you able to do outside the office for the person? Yeah, planning and communication can go a long way. Can't Absolutely. It? Yeah. So, and I think another really important of commu- important aspect of community is definitely housing and independent yeah. living. So, I so talk about maybe what Hamilton County is doing to kind of help people to to find independent living yep. or semi-independent yep. living. Yep. yep, okay. So, and I, I think this is really important. I had somebody really challenge me, uh, you know, uh, because I'm so, obviously, as Director of Integration and Advocacy, I'm, I'm so supportive of the integration effort, but I had somebody really challenge me and say, you know, people can be as lonely 
in, in a community living situation mm-hmm. in an apartment as they are in, in more restrictive environments. Yeah. And I, I had to really chew on that, and I think they're right. And it's really made me think about that. And uh, that was uh, some of my uh, good friends at the Ken Anderson Alliance and uh, really challenged me you know, to think that way. And I think we both grew to the middle together about that. Uh, at the same time, as, as you suggested, I think it's critical that people have the, you know, the, the most independent living situation. They can't. Have, that does not mean that we should condemn them to loneliness and isolation. Yeah. So uh, to your point is, you know, a couple things that Hamilton County is doing. One is, as we're looking, is, is every affordable housing option. That is a huge national epidemic right now is affordable housing for people. And so we're on uh, several task force working hard at that. We've dedicated money and staff to that purpose. We don't have all the answers yet, but we certainly are working toward it. Two is is, is that we're looking at um, waiver options like shared living, things where we can, uh, I just call them compromises of how do we get people most uh, independent. But most independent means specific to them, right? And so again, that's really discovering who the person, what they can handle, what, what environment do they need to be successful and still not be isolated and lonely. If you know somebody is not naturally able to make uh, connections, not actually, you know, not able to, you know, become a, a good neighbor without support, then to stick them in a in an apartment yeah. simply with staff who are simply going to come in and, and and take care of their medications and stuff is in fact isolating them. You're really making that worse. And so I think thinking about would a roommate be appropriate for that person? What kind of roommate would be appropriate? For, what, what might that relationship look like? Those kind of factors. So I think environmental is really important. That's something that we look at, uh, the match for people. And then economic reality is, you know, if people have, are challenged by um, their expenses and also challenged by their uh, disability, maybe behavioral issues, uh, maybe speech issues, maybe health issues, then you really do have to do some long-term planning. And that's one thing I'm going to highlight here is I really think thinking beyond the My Plan or the ISP, thinking beyond a year is so important. What should this look like? And every, you know, every family and team member needs to be involved in and really giving the person, based on what we know about you, person with a disability, what should this look like? What, you know, what would it look like? And making sure that's within the character of the person and then laying out features of development. And I'll, the last thing I'll say on that is I think it's important that we don't wish things for people. In other words, we just go, well, you know, what I would wish for this person is this, if it's so far beyond their character, let's start with a little bit of my, what might it look like. Right. What it, but is it within the character and the abilities of the person and then start to build the supports around that person. And those supports should include non-systemic supports, which means the communities themselves. Uh, where would they go to church, synagogue, or mosque? Mm-hmm. You know, where would, they, uh, where would they congregate? Where would they go to live life? Which is very different than saying you're just going to be stuck in an apartment. Right. Where's the transportation coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what do you have access to? Are you fully dependent on staff only to get access to places? So, and, and then and the, and the big one that we'll probably talk about here is, again, is just the epidemic of loneliness we have among people. And socializes at isolation. So, 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 what do you, in terms of the, the isolation, um, what what do you think are some good strategies to kind of um, combat that? 
Well, a couple things. So let's talk about what, what that really means, loneliness. What we know is regardless of age, regardless of age, from, you know, from toddler to, to death, so to speak, is we know that when you ask, cry, I've asked up to you know, a couple thousand people in all kinds of venues, how many people in the, that are served with developmental disabilities are uh, inherently or uh, most often lonely? And the answer that will come out of crowds is, uh, with no exception, is 80 to 90%, which is epidemic. Um, is compared with about 23% of the rest of the population um, and, and even our elderly population is around you know, 30%. Ironically, just as feedback, it's the, it's the age 40 to 60 that we're finding uh, are pretty lonely too, and that's mm-hmm. just the general population. So how do we, you know, what are some strategies we felt? Well, one is to understand a couple of things. Most of the people that we serve, most of the folks that we serve are one of three kinds of uh, uh, have one of three kinds of social gifts or antisocial behavior, and that is so you have a, a a good portion of the population that, regardless of whether they can truly speak or not, whether they have the language to speak in a way that people understand or not, um, you know, have this uh, desire to be with people mm-hmm. and give other people a good feeling. Right. right? So they're social. There's another huge part of our uh, the population that we serve that don't have good social behavior. They're uncomfortable. They're uh, they oftentimes might be uh, very introverted and in their head and not really externalizing communication, which is off-putting to other people, or at least isn't welcoming, or uh, it's just not seen. It's just not. Uh, it's not. Doesn't seem receptive and hospitable. Uh, and, and but they may have a skill or something they do that brings value to people. So if you think about that, the first group of folks that are social bring value, right, just because they're making a connection. The second group of people that have kind of these skills or attributes that are worthy but not necessarily communication still can overcome that, uh, that separation because all of us, when we're valued for something, uh, you know, I look at some of our uh, movie stars and entertainers, uh, might be considered very antisocial, but if they can sing or they can dance or they can do some kind of computation, all of a sudden, you know, that's that competency, deviancy kind of uh, behavior. And then lastly, uh, there's people that have both. They, they have uh, skills of value or attributes of value, and they're very social. The reason that's important to understand those things, when you take the epidemic of loneliness and you take that stuff, is our strategies for dealing with that is, again, Understanding what the person is. What is it that they have to offer other people? And what can they give? People love to give. So if we can look at the match, and if we have a person that has autism, that, that, that in, in particular, if a person with autism really doesn't have a good sense of social score, is socially awkward, you know, putting them in a situation where we're just going to give them exposure and let him go at it is not going to be successful for him. It does take coaching. It does yeah. take... Uh, we need to be the liaison to yeah. highlight and reveal that person's contributions. Once we can do that, people are like, oh, okay, yeah. hey, Richard's really cool, and uh, and they're fine to not have a 50-50 relationship. They're fine to say, hey, look, Richard's so valuable that I'm willing to, you know, and, and people don't say these words, but they're thinking, hey, you know what, I don't need him to do all this stuff. He's a really neat guy. I really like Richard. And they recognize, they recognize 
uh, that part might not be as developed. And that's no different than everybody at any family reunion. So just as a, as a point of humor, I always say, if you want to see deficits and assets, go to your own family reunion. <laughs> and everybody there, you everybody knows the guy. Everybody shows up with these big pots of food. Yeah. And Uncle Richard only shows up with a bag of chips every time. Okay, that's a deficit. But he is funny as heck. Yeah. So we kind of give him a break. And his wife is awesome. Aunt Marjorie is awesome. So, you know, this is the way we do things. Right. I like what you said, you, the word you used, uh, value, because I think so many times as adults, no matter who we are, the number one place that we kind of develop community, develop friendships is employment. And people with disabilities so often maintaining employment, yeah. it, the, yeah. the, the rates are so bad. Yeah. So yeah. it's, no, it's no, no surprise yeah. to me yeah. that there is a lack of value in yeah. so many people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, and I think let's talk employment for a minute because I, I think for me two main things to think about are this one of one of the things I'm going to go back to school here in a minute, but first of all, when we talk employment, I think a lot of times is we put so much emphasis on employment. I think the emphasis should be on contribution, right? First, because contribution. This is what we do with our you know with with, with uh, typical kids where we're like, you know, you don't, you don't ask a kid that's 14 to start out, you know, uh, at a corporation. You just don't do that, right? Or, you know, we start them with starter jobs. They start to build the responsibility, start to build the sense of what's going on. I also think that we can um, kind of over-prepare people and, and not give them a, a exposure because they're getting them ready. I'm not a big believer in readiness. I'm a believer in getting people to the actual site that they're going to participate in. Yeah. Because I think what happens with a lot of people we serve is it just does not transfer. I think that's been well documented. And so, yeah. um, you know, if I don't have, you know, just because I, I do business in Holland doesn't mean I'm at all, just just because I, you know, I fix bicycles in Holland doesn't mean I can fix bicycles in Italy because the culture may be completely different. And um, so I think that it's really important as we think about contributions, what are they able to contribute? Then that begins to reveal for us, what, you know, what are the gifts, and then where can I apply those gifts that will be valued? And some companies or some say, hey, we don't care what he acts like, man, as long as he can get these done. Other, it's all about the culture. Mm-hmm. So that match and understanding is very, very important. The other thing I want to go back to in that I think it's really important is it, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's comparable, and that is, when so many of the people that we serve start school, when I'm talking five years old, we begin immediately talk about scholastics. What is their scholastic? Uh, what is their scholastic contribution going to be? Let's get them all ready for scholastics. And I, I fully recognize that a portion of the people that we serve with intellectual disabilities have uh, excellent scholastic ability. But the larger majority do not, and I think it's insane that we start again with a deficit and we're just going to try to work on that weakness or that area of weakness. We have to do that, but what I would like us to do is stop talking about our five-year-olds as students only and immediately begin in schools to talk about them as um, future citizens. Mm -hmm. So if you expand that all the way through their aging adulthood and talk about citizenry instead of employees citizenry instead of uh, churchgoers or mosque-goers or synagogue-goers, you know, if you, if you talk about a, a larger citizen, now that opens up their opportunities because now we can talk about the whole person. And, okay, and, and one of the things, and I'll use an example, so many kids that I've run into and adults with autism, the complaint by their families is they play 14 hours of video games. I didn't know this. For your, and it's just like so many folks 
play these, you know, and, and so I, I and, and, you know, the moms typically are uh, worried that, you know, hey, my son, I cannot get him off the keys. Well, why? Let's really look at why that is. And I'm not a social scientist. I certainly know very little bit about gaming. But what I do know in, in working with a lot of folks with autism that do the games is, here's what I know. They can control the environment. Their, their ability to control the environment, control the communication, mm-hmm. because they do communicate. Their characters communicate. So all here, no, he, does, he has no ability really to socialize. But he's socializing in a way. He's constructing something where within the game itself, he's able to do the greetings and all these kinds of things. Why is it? Because he can control them. Uh, he can take his time. He can pause it. Mm-hmm. He can pause the game and think <laughs> it. He can ask for help from other gamers about that. Um, and he has the ability to do that. And there's all kinds of other stuff that are fascinating to people, why, why they play games. But I've been amazed by people uh, who are way better at those games than I do. I think of a, a guy that I work with that has autism. He's so good at this. When I talk to him in the context of a game, his social skills are actually pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and um, so one uh, side story, we, we, just as a reward, I took him to get a game for his birthday, and we went into the gaming store, and I think it's very important when I say this, that I say this with, that I mean this with great respect. The great thing is he would describe himself, I would describe himself as kind of nerdy looking. He, that's, that is a, a, a uh, visual that he likes. So we walk in the store, and everybody in the store that works there looks just like him. All of a sudden, his disability fades, his competence is, is raised, and he just starts talking uh, in a way yeah. with those folks that he cannot talk to other people about. And now he has a social connection. So that's that's a little bit of, I think, what we're talking about. So I just think, you know, really getting underneath the skin of folks and finding out those competencies and looking at their bigger self um, and not only looking at as an employee, not only looking at them as a, uh, a this or that or just as a volunteer, really helps open up the scale and, and then begins to um, breed uh, possibility. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great example because so many times I am frustrated because we, those that work with people with autism or other disabilities, have a reluctancy reluctancy to join their world to to some extent. Right, right. But yet we're asking them to completely come into our world and yep. you know and, and into our into the rest of the community. And I think you know, and, and it's always the case, is it not, Doug? That that you know, if um, you know. That, that that happens a lot of times. And let, let's take the example of, uh, the, the counter example actually is the dad whose son clearly has athletic ability. And let's just say he plays football. And is in, I would say sixth grade. We don't know, we have no idea how good he is. But let's say yeah. at that moment he's really good. He's really, he's all in. Uh, all of us, that, and I have girls, but all of us who've seen the sixth grade boy who's completely enveloped in Sports, you know, ah, he's gonna be, you know, and the dad's in it, you know, and um, and then and so we just start to project all the stuff. Sure. Well, in that case, so often society goes, oh, that's neat, man, he's really good at that. As you said, what's what's uh, rather alarming if we step away from our DD side and say, so if a, if a child with autism, since this just is our collective experience, uh, yours and mine, so many like video games, you know, is it the video game itself? Is that a bad thing? Well. Certainly, we want balance. Right. None of our kids, regardless of what they're into, artists, dance, whatever, you know, they can't do it 24-7 and not have a balanced life. But I do think to not value that 
to not look upon that with some level of value and say, what can we learn from this? Yeah. What can we pull? Is You're exactly right. Why wouldn't we start with their gifts, your point, yeah. um, and say, well, what, what can we get out of this that would be helpful? Um, and I think people assume, well, we can't have everybody with autism playing games. You and I are not suggesting that. Certainly in the spectrum of autism, that isn't occurring. Correct. But I do think that we shortcut people because, as, as far as I know, it's a technical world. There's all kinds of things that we can gain from that that they could get involved in, including clubs. Again, the, uh, the guy that I was talking about was uh, truly antisocial, had no desire to get with other people until we began to do just as you suggest to go, well, let's apply a little bit what's going on in your world with other people that know your world. I, Eric Metzger, the, the Director of Integration Advocacy, is, is, I'm the one on the outs. That's what I realized. And so the deal I brokered with this guy is, I'm just your idea guy. I'm not your staff. I'm not your, yeah. I'm just your idea guy. I know nothing about games. Can you be my Can advisor? Can you teach me? I did. That's exactly yeah. what I said. Yeah. I said, will you be my advisor? Because he would laugh at me. Right. Uh, he would laugh at me because of my uh, ignorance in, in, in all these gaming things. I said, look, man, I'm never going to be good at this. Will you be my gaming ex? And I literally use this guy now when I work with other kids that have the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, proclivity, you know, and, and say, hey, I'll call him and say, hey, listen, what, what do I say to this guy? Like, what, what do I need to know about this? And... Uh, you know, and that's really kind of cool. Yeah, humans love to help and they love to teach. You know, yeah, yeah, it show, it totally changes the trajectory. You know, yeah. it goes from very uncomfortable to, oh, okay, yeah. All right. well, thank you, everyone, for listening today. And I especially want to thank Eric for not only the interview, but after the interview as we continue to talk about helping people develop community. I think we're both so passionate about this that it's tough for, I know, me just to stop talking about about this. Um, and so often, teens and adults with autism struggle with anxiety and, as a result, don't have success in their lives. Autism Personal Coach is a unique service in that we help individuals with autism by working on meaningful individualized goals, such as developing community in the setting in which they'll be used so their anxiety is greatly reduced, and as a result, they become more independent and successful. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, it's very easy. All you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will uh, talk about self-advocacy with Barbara Rutt, who is an advocate for those with disabilities and special populations for the Lorain County Safe Harbor Genesis House. Talk to you then.